same China, different stories. Rio's the one that found their way in a new life. Adopted babies, adopted babies from China. Welcome to ABC Adopted Babies from China podcast. I'm Tara, and if you're new here, the podcast is about Chinese adoptees mostly, and sometimes other adoptees. And we talk about adoption essentially. Today, I'm speaking with somebody that I actually met via Clubhouse, I believe, not Instagram, because usually that's been my main source of finding people. But yeah, Clubhouse is another tool that. Exists. I'll let you introduce yourself <laughs> before I go on a rant. Sure. Thanks. My name is Michaela Gesford, and yes, we we did meet on Clubhouse. I just want to confirm that and validate what you're saying. <laughs> so, I guess just a little bit about me briefly. I was born in 1992 and adopted in 1994 to a single white mom. Um, I'm currently living in Boston, Massachusetts, where I work as a Bio process engineer in like the biotech industry. So my company works on developing drug products for patients with sickle cell disease. And I've been in this industry for about seven years. Prior to living here and working at my current company, I lived in Portland, Oregon, and worked at Genentech, which is like the third largest biotech biopharma company in the world. I think question mark. Um, so yeah, it's just a little bit about me. Whoa. Okay. So you were adopted when you were two years old. Yeah. Essentially,、uh, too. I I think according to my mom, they estimated me at like twenty two months old, so、mm-hmm. just shy of being two years.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know whereabouts where you were? I guess I don't know if you know where you were born, but like I guess where you're adopted、right. from. <laughs> yes, I was adopted from.、Uh, so like I'm gonna. I feel like I always get it wrong. I think it's Fuzhou in like Jiangxi, Jiangxi、uh, yeah. province. So yeah, that's where I was adopted from the orphanage there. But yeah, I don't have any idea where I was actually born.、Mm-hmm. In your when you were adopted, were you adopted with other kids? I guess like from photos. I assume that that you have photos. If you do, hopefully you do. Of photos <laughs> like the adoption group. Were you the oldest kid? Yeah, actually. So I was adopted with.、Um, Four other girls. I want to say four, maybe five. I can't remember off the top of my head, but we all have pictures together, and it was a very similar situation that I think many other、um, adoptees have experienced, where like our families would get us together every year、mm. as kind of this annual <laughs> gathering or reunion of、mm. sorts of all the girls that were adopted at the same time,、um, and I was the oldest one. Of that、mm. group, and then that just sort of stopped happening after we all got into college and moved away, and now we live in very different states, far, far away from each other. So, I haven't seen or even really talked to any of those girls in years.、Mm, yeah, yeah. I feel like I hear that too. It's like in addition to the stories of groups we. Having reunions is also they sometimes disband too, just because people end up moving or you get older and things. Totally,、happen. yeah. 
and mm-hmm. like I like some of us like we follow each other on socials and mm-hmm. I have actually had like one of the girls like reach out to me recently because she's seen me posting a lot more about like the adoptee experience some more of my thoughts mm-hmm. on like the trauma that it is and also like the systemic issues that it has and she's been really curious as to, like where this is coming from because like when we used to gather as kids and growing up like none of us talked about any of that mm-hmm. you know like we would all get together and our families would have like a dinner party but we didn't talk about the fact that like we were adoptees and we mm-hmm. were adopted and what did that actually mean and how do we feel about it um, and all that stuff so it's kind of like me emerging from the fog and being a bit public about it as well is sort of prompting some new questions from from some of them too how, how long ago would you say you I guess you I don't know if people are familiar with the terminology of like coming out in the fog but like how long ago were you I guess becoming more aware and then actively doing something to understand mm-hmm. it's pretty recent actually so it was around December 2020 that it started so really only where today is July 2021 so eight months ago Mm -hmm. hasn't even been a year yet and it came about in a really random way (laughs) basically I when I moved to Boston I made a lot of new friends and through one of those friends I got connected to like Brian and Maggie of Asian Hustle Network and I started volunteering for their organization and helping out with their projects and their Facebook group. And um, one of their projects was writing a book, an anthology of just like the lives of Asians around the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was really apparent to me was like, there are no other adopted people in this book. I was like, there's like every, it's the same immigrant story. I mean, not to you know, put a blanket over all immigrant stories because they're all unique and different. But I was just like, there are other types of Asians in America aside from that narrative and they're not represented right now. They, of course, heard me and were very understanding and they were like, okay, like find some people in, you know, the Asian Hustle Network who are also adopted and let's see like who you would want to highlight to put in this book. And that's how I found Patrick Armstrong, who I'm sure you're very familiar with. Um, He's really becoming, I think, a great voice in the adoptee community. So, but I found him and I was interested in talking to him at that time more because he was speaking to his, like his nonprofit group. And I thought that that was really interesting. I wanted to hear more about like what got him started and all of that. Um, And then also just the fact that when he talked a little bit about his origin story, being an adoptee, growing up in a predominantly white area, like that resonated with me a lot. And so I wanted to just get to know him some more. And so I ended up interviewing him for the book and we had scheduled, you know, like a one hour interview, but we ended up talking for probably three hours or something because in reality, like he was the first adult Asian adoptee who I had talked to about what it really meant to like be an adoptee. Like he's the one who introduced mm-hmm. the word adoptee to me before mm-hmm. then I hadn't even considered it. I was just like, yeah, I'm adopted. Like end of story, like nothing else to say there. That's how I kind of like, I didn't even know 
either that there was this term coming out of the fog. I didn't even know that there was such a thing as an air quote fog that existed. And it was that interaction with Patrick that really just like set me down this rabbit hole of wanting to find, you know, more adoptee influencers on social media, find other adult adoptee voices, read a lot more books about it, like understand the history and the context of how like international adoption even began. And then, and then Clubhouse happened mm-hmm. and that's where it also really, really kicked off because suddenly then we were able to find a community of other adult Asian adoptees and not just like write to one another or see each other's post social media, but actually like talk to one another right. um, and have, you know, not face to face, but I guess voice to voice engagement real time and kind of be with one another wherever each of us were at kind of in our journeys and just like support each other. So, yeah. Wow. That's pretty awesome that it came from, uh, I mean, I guess it's part of like networking when you just talk to other people and sometimes things come up and that's how you start to realize some, some other aspect of your own, because I think a little bit with, I guess, coming out of the fog or especially, I feel like we have this in common being a little bit older. Cause I was born in 93 adopted in 98 so I was like almost five I was pretty much almost five mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. and it's I think growing up too there's not always necessarily a fine line or it's not always spoken about that's like the fact that we are adopted kids who most likely are transracial not always but most likely are transracial and then I was noticing this too because I recently went on a trip where I saw some people from like a year ago who I used to work with and then some people I used to run with in the DC area and somebody actually brought up a good point I don't know if it's just the year shifted but our conversations went kind of much deeper and more serious than they have ever gone before and it came up with like it's like an identity crisis like part of we all go through identity crisis I guess related and it happens not just at in our 20s but sometimes it happens later on in life too and I don't know why it's like only in our 20s, maybe that it's become more prevalent, but it, it's been happening to, I guess, Gen Z and those who are younger than us. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have more awareness or they're exposed to a lot more difference of opinions. And that allows yeah. for them to become more involved with like their identity crisis earlier on. I don't know if that's the case, but it seems like in the time that we grew up, there wasn't necessarily all these avenues to like have an identity crisis earlier on or mm-hmm. our generation above us or the parents that raise us kind of impact totally. that conversation too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're kind of touching on mental health as a whole. You know, I think that there are so many factors that sort of play into the various generations, either having a healthy relationship with sort of introspection and mental health and being able to question their identity and evolve it over time. Because I think our generation and, you know, the baby boomer generation and those older than us grew up during a time when not only were they just like faced with such dramatically different challenges, given the state of the world and our society and what we were in, you know, like the Great Depression and just a lot of like social reckoning then as well. But it just was never okay to not be okay and I think that now also with social media right sort of starting in our generation and then really 
being just a part of everyday life now and for the generation after us growing up with it and not knowing what life is like without Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or the internet. It's like a double-edged sword because you have access to so many different perspectives like you were saying, but at the same time, there's all this comparison and a lot of like toxic mentality that can spread very easily because of the platforms. Um, so I feel like identity is, is, I felt like when I was growing up, I never had, or maybe it was because I wasn't self-aware enough, but it just never felt like I had a choice to even figure out who I was. It was yeah. just, these are the expectations based on your race, your color, your height, like your gender, Mm -hmm. um like the socioeconomic status you have the area that you live in you know like what your parents look like and then now I feel like people are just I don't know I think that they're taking the time to take a step back and challenge that more freely and earlier on because because of people like on social media who they say doing it and who are kind of being an example to say like it's okay to not be okay like it's okay to question those assumptions and it's okay to do something different and you don't have to fit like, in this box anymore oh yeah definitely i feel like that transitions because there's like that expectation as when we were younger between like being a male and female and even present day what does that really entail or mm -hmm. that idea but i'm kind of curious because you also mentioned this when you were talking earlier that you are involved with like bio systems engineering or bio but something biology and engineering <laughs> related yeah so I went to Oregon State University oh, okay. and got That's my degree in yeah and I got my degree in bioengineering which don't really ask me what that means because it means so many different things and mm -hmm. I don't even really have a great answer for you but essentially it's like the combination of like our biological sciences and understanding of self and how we work as humans with like a lot of the core aspects and fundamentals of engineering, right? Which is problem solving, like innovation, new mm -hmm. technologies. So it's how do we um, take what we know about the human body and how we function and innovate and engineer like new solutions, whether that be through, um, new drug products like treatments for various diseases or cancers things that i'm working on or whether it's um you know innovating new biomedical devices like um, understanding what a biomedical device is things something as simple as a wheelchair like that's a biomedical device or if it's like bioelectronics and developing new like microchips i don't know to like help target certain aspects of things in the body kind of just a very broad range. But yeah, my, my current career, I work as a process engineer in the biotech industry, which basically means that I work on like optimizing and making more efficient and ensuring regulatory compliance of our process for whatever we're doing. Whoa. I guess backtrack I mean at first you said it's like oh yeah I've been doing this for seven years I was like oh my god I guess we have been out of school for that long <laughs> but first yeah. like seven years have you always been interested in this type of career path I should say or line of work that's an that's a good question because I it actually kind of traces to like how I thought about myself and my self-imposed identity when I was in college mm -hmm. I think that I really heavily leaned into the 
like model minority myth um, because I grew up around a predominantly white, like I grew up in a predominantly white area. So I didn't really have very many diverse friends and all that people knew about Asians was what is portrayed in like social media and on movies and is a very narrow view of, right, of what it means to be Asian. And so I really leaned into that and I was like, yeah, that's just who I am. Like, I'm good at math. I'm good at science. I'm going to go be an engineer. Like, these were not expectations that were put on me by my mom or my family by any means. It was something that I placed on myself based mm-hmm. on, again, like, that was my only example of Asianness anywhere. I had no racial mirrors growing up. And so I had no idea what I what I wanted to do or what I was supposed to do. So I went into college being like, yes, I'm just going to be an engineer. (laughs) And I also half did it because I just like to challenge myself and prove people wrong and be like, yeah, I can, I can do that really hard thing. So when I got into engineering, I, you know, there's civil engineering, there's like environmental engineering. For some reason, I just decided to do bioengineering. I think because I was also interested in learning more about the human body and like, how the heck do we work? <laughs> I don't understand, you know? So that's how I got into bioengineering. And then I've been working ever since in this field. But I mean, the pandemic, of course, has given all of us time. Well, actually, I should say I have the privilege of it having given me time to sort of take a step back and think. And I have mm-hmm. been realizing over the past, I would say, year or two that I don't really know if this is what I want to do for mm-hmm. much longer. I have I recently got divorced in 2017 and had another identity crisis then. And ever since, I've been doing a lot of introspection and trying to kind of redefine myself and also accept that it's okay for my identity to be constantly evolving. And part of that mm-hmm. is looking at like what I do for work and how I make my money and if it's something that I want to continue contributing to or if I'm maybe more passionate about something else but also you know balancing how passionate do I feel like I need to be about the work that I do or is it just going to be a job that provides me with a means to live when I was in college I was really interested in psychology I took one class as an elective And I remember that being probably the most fun class that I took in Mm. the four years of college that I was there. And I should have taken that kind of as an indication. It's like, hey, you seem really excited about this. Maybe you should pursue it further instead of just, you know, again, putting myself in that box where I was like, no, you have to become an engineer. Why? Because it will be well respected in society and your mom will be proud when she gets to say that her daughter's an engineer and Mm. you'll make a good salary and you know, sort of those more superficial things when I still have a really deep and really hungry interest in learning more about psychology and understanding, you know, how, not only how do we work as humans, but how does our brain work and, you know, what makes us think the way that we think. And I have been recently thinking about going back to school and Mm -hmm. maybe doing something different, like becoming a therapist or clinical psychologist I don't know yeah 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 there's a there's yeah a, there's different levels I guess of what you can do with psychology and therapy for sure whoa wow yeah. I was like whoa yeah that's a <laughs> I don't know how to follow just like how do I follow up that because that was um 
every time you answer a question, you always like reveal something else. I was like, well, that's, that's really interesting. I want to learn more about that, but I don't want to be like too invasive either. Oh no. Yeah. (laughs) You can ask me anything. Oh my gosh. I'm curious though, because I mean, just my perspective, personal experience too. It's like, I, I, I have a good friend growing up who just got married and it was like, she went through the process of planning her own wedding. And I was like, you know, I wonder, I don't think it's different just because we're adoptees, but I was like, I really wonder if there was like another, if there's like another aspect of like the whole wedding and planning process because we're adoptees. Cause like, I guess like getting married and everything is joining with somebody almost usually. And then of course, well, you, you did say you got divorced too. So I was like, I don't want to ask about that, but I don't know what the question really is. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, 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 go for it. I have so many thoughts. I mean, I think the (laughs) first thing that comes to mind is just relationships as an adoptee is a constant struggle because you are reckoning with abandonment trauma. Mm -hmm. You are reckoning with like, uh, you know, identity crises you're reckoning with this concept and feeling of never being anything enough right like whether it's american enough or asian enough or or whatever it is right and so it's like okay dating people is a whole other right i don't know it's just this whole other mess and i you know so my ex-husband he is a chinese born in America to first-generation immigrant parents who immigrated here from China, you know, a while ago. And I find it interesting because I think that I can tie roots back to my adoptee identity, even in why I chose to be with him. And it's because in some like subconscious way, I was trying to utilize that relationship as a way to reconnect with like my Chinese roots and, you know, be with him to sort of feel that sense of family or connection to that heritage that I had lost. But it was also done in a very toxic way. um, Or I just realized ways in which that relationship harmed my confidence in my own Asian-ness because since his family was very traditional, right? Like they primarily spoke in Mandarin. I know absolutely no Mandarin. They would, um, we would go on trips to China together and they would tell me that like I couldn't talk or, you know, I had to pretend to behave different ways so that it wouldn't be as obvious that I was a foreigner and not like raised Um, in an Asian household. Um, I didn't really even start using chopsticks until I was dating him and then when we would eat with his family, like they only ever use chopsticks and they would kind of look at me like, how the hell do you not know how to use chopsticks? <laughs> like you're Asian. <laughs> like, well, I don't know. I didn't grow up using right. them. So that relationship was, I, I'm like, I can I mean, I could talk about that for days, but I think ultimately to kind of talk a little bit about what you were curious about too, and just the planning and all of that, that was all, that was a struggle because you know, I wanted to maybe do some of the traditional like Chinese, um, I don't even know what to call them, like some of the traditional Chinese things for a wedding, Mm -hmm. like the tea ceremony or whatever else happens. But I had no idea what those were. And my ex-husband, 
and like his family, they, it's like, not that they weren't open to teaching me about it, but it was kind of like, well, you're not actually Chinese, so mm-hmm. we're not going to do it. And then, you know, of course, I was like, well, I also want it to be Western because that's where I grew up here. Yeah, and yeah. I see all these things about these great, like, American weddings. And then, of course, it was challenging, too, just the concept of, like, the fact that I was raised by a single mom and, right. you know, I have many father figures in my life. But it was just, it was, like, constant reminders, I think, about how much loss there's been in my life. Right but I didn't really have the language or the maturity when I was going through it to be able to identify it as such. It just felt like stress, (laughs) you know, and I probably just attributed it to the stress of planning a wedding Mm -hmm. um, and the stress of, you know, not feeling like I belonged (laughs) anywhere. Mm -hmm. I wanted so desperately to feel like I was truly family and like truly belonging to, you know, my husband at the time. Um, and I didn't get it. Like I, I didn't get it. Wow. That's, that's really tough too, because it's while we are all trying to figure out, I mean, I think we're always, we're always facing big challenges, I think within ourselves and sometimes other people can help either alleviate some of that or make it worse, which is, unfortunate but it's true I feel like that's the truth totally and you know I don't necessarily blame him or his family because at the same time a lot of it was just me you know it's just like where was I in feeling confident in my own self and my own sense of identity and thinking back to who I was in 2017 like I did not have that confidence you know I did not have that sense of strong self that I do now and now I've come to a point where I realize that like I'm also responsible for creating a sense of belonging that I want and acknowledging that it's you know not other people's job to make me feel that I just need to kind of create that space for my own and just acknowledge that sometimes people will ignorantly or unintentionally say things or do things that may challenge that belief Mm -hmm. but I'm the one who gets to choose if I want to believe it or not yeah insert famous Eleanor Roosevelt quote here (laughs) yeah I mean it's true totally totally yeah yeah. and it's it's a long and hard road to get there but I think that's also partly why I don't know just like me as a person if there's like if there's ever one thing that I could do in life it's just that I want everybody in the world (laughs) to just feel like they belong somewhere Mm -hmm. and to never feel like they're alone because it's true and like I firmly do believe that like there are there is a place for everyone and I think that like and when people interact with me that's how I hope that they feel regardless of if they like me or not or if they really feel like we could be great friends like that's okay we don't have to be great friends I just want you to know that like you belong in this world as you are and like I hope you feel safe like interacting with me that would be it yeah oh yeah there's people who come and go for different reasons and different time periods yeah for sure yeah so I'll probably insert a break at some point
Oh, yeah. I grew up on the West Coast in Oregon in a pretty small town called Lebanon, Oregon. It's south of Portland, Oregon, about 70 miles. And when I was living there, probably had a population of like 10,000 people. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's pretty small. And it's, again, it's predominantly white, not very diverse. Um, Growing up all through school, I was consistently the only person of color or maybe one of a small handful and yeah that was it I was also I see so many stories of being tokenized as <laughs> the cultured person or the person of color or the Asian you know which is unfortunate but it's the product of the environment that I was in I see and then being in Massachusetts I kind of think that must have to do with the work the work path you're in right now because I think that they're known for that kind of work <laughs> totally yeah. yeah I moved here for my job that I have currently at the mm-hmm. company that I'm at currently and Cambridge specifically is considered like a biotech hub so there are just hundreds of companies mm-hmm. here in my field whereas in Oregon there was maybe you know five to ten If that, if I could even name that many. How does it feel to be living on the East Coast versus the West Coast? It's nice. I mean, it's different. Mm -hmm. I like each of the coasts for different reasons. Um, I definitely miss a lot of aspects about the West Coast. I think that the pace of life there is just a little more chill. Mm -hmm. I miss being able to look out the window and like see the mountains all the time I just miss the landscapes and actually having close proximity to a forest kind of basically living in a forest you know the east coast is has a lot of history it's a lot older and its Mm -hmm. charm is different than the charm that you get of the west coast and the diversity is a lot greater on the east coast not only in you know just race and um identity but I also think in in thought I think people are more expressive in their diversity of thought over here versus the west coast seems a little more homogenous in that sense or and or it's because people are more passive aggressive on the west coast and so Mm -hmm. they may have challenges to your ways of thinking or they may differ but they'll be less vocal about it Mm. yeah and so the east coast is definitely i like it but i do want to go back to the west coast more for nature reasons Mm -hmm. i'm less of a beach person which the east coast is really great for Mm -hmm. i'm more of a mountains and forest person which is is the west west when you go west oh okay that makes sense yeah i was like i don't remember if you actually said where you grew up but that makes sense now Teeny tiny town, yeah. Teeny tiny town in Oregon. Yep. I mean, Oregon's a big state to me as well. So. 
It is. It's super expansive. I mean, that's the other interesting thing. Like on the East Coast, you have, I don't even know how many states on the whole coast. You can drive across three of them in like a couple hours. Yeah. Whereas the West Coast, we have three states that cover the whole coast. And so it's much more expansive. Yeah, it takes you three hours to like even get to the border, right? Yeah. Yeah. If even. Sure. <laughs> if even. Yeah. If not more. Well, I guess you already answered this, but I was like, have you been back to China or back to where you were adopted from? So I have, when I was 16, that was my first time returning to China, and it was a trip with my mom and my aunt, and I don't remember what prompted the trip, if it was my mom's idea or my idea or, I don't know, just an accident, but we ended up spending six weeks in China, the three of us, and we went to, I think, eight different provinces. Um, And part of that trip was uh, this quote unquote, like heritage tour where we went back to my orphanage, we met, you know, the orphanage director, they took me to my air quoting, finding place. Um, I got to meet my, or I guess re-meet my foster family. And it was just a very, I would say numbing experience. Mm -hmm. I think at 16, I was just too emotionally immature to really process what was happening. And so I just remember the experience feeling like very out of body and not really knowing how I should respond or react to anything. Because again, when I was that age, I had not spent any time thinking about my identity as an adoptee or even considering the fact that it was traumatic to me as a person. Mm -hmm. I basically was drowning in the predominant adoption narrative of, oh, you should be grateful for this and you owe your family your life. Like I literally thought those things. I was like, wow, my family saved me. I owe them everything. And I remember also having a lot of, you know, I identified it as a rational fear, but I had a lot of fear of, oh my God, are they going to let me back into America? Mm, like, yeah. what, ha- what if something happens while we're here and like they take me away? Like, I know that that sounds so like movie dramatic, but it's like, oh, like what happens? Because when we would go to the border, you know, like even entering the country, I was with, you know, my, my white mom and my white aunt. Yeah. And I remember the, the officer just taking like three times longer with us than any other person and asking us so many questions in Chinese that we of course don't know how to answer and then trying to communicate with us in English that we're like I still don't understand what you're Mm, trying to ask but basically the whole concept of like how the hell is this your mom yeah and then it says here that you were born in China I don't understand cannot like compute right (laughs) so I was really stressed out um the whole time and not only during the portion of the trip where we went to my orphanage, but just when we traveled around at all, because everywhere we went, we had a translator and a guide, which was amazing. They were mm-hmm. amazing people, but it was just, we constantly got stared at. And I know my mom and my aunt were the ones primarily the focus of the attention, but there was always so many comments too, from taxi drivers, from other people like, how come she can't speak Chinese or what is she doing with these white people or, Oh, she's so beautiful. But like, what, I don't understand. And like our translators would kind of tell us what they were saying. Otherwise I would have no idea. Um, But yeah, I was just very uncomfortable because you can tell that like, even in China where I was also very excited to finally 
see other people that look like me it's like oh you're mm-hmm. still an outsider here like you still don't belong and there's something yeah. so off about you <laughs> yeah yeah and then that of course brings up the whole like well I mean I didn't used to be in this place but i am with a bunch of other kids (laughs) right with i mean thousands and thousands thousands, yes of other people yeah don't we love it adoptee trauma brings all of us together (laughs) seriously (laughs) i mean that's i guess that's how communities are formed in some ways there's some common yeah yeah community we were all Mm -hmm. bonded by not really having a choice and well most of us not having a choice and being where we are <laughs> right um, wow Just, mm-hmm. being victims of a lot of different things like a, a very interesting geopolitical landscape yeah. victims of like some capitalist systems and yeah it's just crazy to think about um and then of course you know with the recent news of like China right. not not having any policy or governance right. over how many children families can have now. It's like I haven't even taken the time to step back and think about what emotions I'm feeling because right. <laughs> it's just so shocking. And, you know, understanding that, well, the one-child policy was born out of extreme famine and loss of millions due to enough food in China – but then, you know, the government never taking a step back to think about the long-term repercussions right. of such a policy. And the, of course, the, the horrific traumas that that ensued with all of the infant side and abandonment and human trafficking and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. kidnapping, things like that. And then now it's like not even what, because international adoption from china started in 1992 you know it's it's barely even a few decades later that then they are like well have as many kids as you want yep just have as many as you want oh yeah. okay let's just disregard everything it's like i don't want to sound hypocritical it's like don't dwell on the past but i guess it's hard not to dwell on the past when you're thinking about your future too and your own right. and your own growth it's like shoot thinking about my own growth, I do have to think about the roots of like where we come from, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Right. Trying well, to focus on positive. <laughs> totally. Well, and it's just the, you know, the weird thing to conceptualize of like, oh, wow, if I had just been born 30 years later, I'd still be in China, you know, yeah. doing whatever I would be doing. Who knows? Who knows? But it's just, I guess I, I try not to dwell on that too, because there's really no point I guess I just think of it as like, I really hope that people are able, not people, but just like systems and people who are in power, like take the time to listen and understand and think long-term about their decisions and actions and what kind of, you know, impacts and effects that it has on people's lives because it's not insignificant. You know, I mean, maybe to them it feels like it is, but right. it's not. I mean, there's a large collective group of people where it's hugely significant. And I think they, that is starting to become more apparent these days. Totally. Especially those of us who are, I mean, we're, I guess, yeah, 1992 was kind of the start. So a lot of us are becoming, we're getting close to 30, which is what the 
I would say Cree and adoptee community specifically, they are older. And mm-hmm. even in Korea, I think there are some systems in place and some organizations that actually help with, I think, dealing with the aftermath of Korean adoptee adoption too. Totally. Yeah. Korean adoption has a completely different like historical mm-hmm. landscape and circumstance. But yeah, I think adoption from Korea started in the 50s, right? So it's yeah. definitely, there are, I mean, CADs do definitely deserve a lot of um, just support and mm-hmm. and like praise for kind of leading the way because the adults, the adult adoptees from the Korean adoptee community are some of the first ones to highlight some of these specific yes. issues and speak out about them. But definitely I'm, I'm also glad that we're in a time and space where, you know, more adult adoptees are speaking out, are kind of talking things through. And I also think that the sheer number of like Korean and Chinese adoptees overshadows a lot of other like international adoption that occurs, you know, from India, from Vietnam, from a lot of other countries as well. And it's like, where is their support and Mm -hmm. where are the communities for them specifically to talk about their unique challenges, given the history that comes from what, you know, what created the international adoption system for that to occur. So that's a lot. I guess I will ask the last question because we are probably going to be closing down soon. Is there anything you want to hear from other adoptees or other people who adoption has become a pretty big part of their lives? Um, yeah, I guess I would say from other adoptees, I want to hear whatever they want to say mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think that it's really important as each adoptee individually navigates their journey to just, you know, like validate whatever it is that they're experiencing and help guide them towards resources. If that's something that they want, help guide them towards communities. And so I think that just for me, like there's no specific thing that I want to hear from anybody. It's just, Mm -hmm. I want to hear whatever is on your mind in regards to whether it's yourself or the people around you or literally anything adoptee related or not. I think it's just important to have spaces where we are, safe and validated and you know not going to be judged Um, even if what we say is ignorant because sometimes we have to say something quote-unquote wrong in order to then challenge our own thinking and be like wait that's not what I meant or that's not like I've learned now and this is what I understand instead and I think from you know those who are around adoptees I would (laughs) I just want people to learn and educate themselves and ask questions and, you know, like turn to the many, many resources that are out there um, that are created by adoptees for adoptees, but also for communities around adoptees, the parents, the siblings, the friends, Mm -hmm. everybody. And yeah, I guess I, it depends on the circumstances of kind of like, why are they talking to me? Like, what's it about? But Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if it's a potentially prospective adoptee parent, I would have a lot of questions for them. I would really want to understand, like, what are your intentions behind adopting? Like, how much do you know about the adoption agency that you've chosen? If you've chosen to adopt a child of a different race, like, why? Like, Mm -hmm. what do you understand about, you know, the for-profit industry of adoption? How much learning have you done about adoption roots from 
all <laughs> all areas, but specifically from the country where you were adopting this child from, you know, like so many questions, like, have you gone to therapy? Do you understand your own traumas? Because <laughs> every parent will yes. inevitably pass on pass something on. To yes. their child. But the earlier that you could admit that you're not perfect and that's okay, the earlier that you can start to have a healthy conversation around it and then also bring your child into that and make it a family like a family growth instead of just you like suppressing your own shit. But I think that that's also just a question I have for anyone who wants to be a parent in general. Like, have you done this work yet? And if not, maybe you should reconsider. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But that's not for me to govern your life or tell you what you should or shouldn't do. Yeah. Because we all are figuring it out on our own. Exactly. We're doing the best we can. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to share about just share about yourself really it was pretty fascinating just engaging and it's like wow I'm really interested to have more conversations with you now after we do this <laughs> thanks and- yeah well thank you for asking me to be here and talk to you I really appreciate it and I like feel very honored that you would be curious about me and want to share it with other people Oh, yeah. I usually think of something like, oh, she would be really interesting or that person would be really interesting to talk to. But I have to like build that relationship before. I'm like, okay, so come on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. No I'm sure we'll talk again soon. I'm not on yeah. nearly as much as I was in the beginning. Oh, same. Um, I Yeah, either. it's there's other ways to communicate, too. <laughs> exactly. And I feel like Clubhouse was so amazing because it was there during a time when I I was just like grasping for some way to connect with people and mm-hmm. Zoom, being tired of Zoom. Yeah. And, you know, it, I think it did provide such a great avenue for me to connect with other adoptees and have a place to talk about our life experiences. But yeah, I'm just tired of it now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like to use it that much anymore. But I'm actually like in New York, I don't want to say super often, but mm. um, we'll, we'll be there. I'm sure like again in the future. And so I'll let you know when we head down and we'll have to link up. Yes. Yes. We will definitely have to link up. Yeah, Um, for sure. So I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And feel free, like anytime we should schedule some time to just like have like a virtual lunch together or something and just chat. Cause I definitely, you know, like I like to learn more about people too. Thank you for listening to ABC. You can reach me at Adopted Babies from China Pod on Instagram and Facebook or Adopted Babies from China.